0: The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. You'd open your Bibles to uh, Hebrews chapter 10, where we're going to be today. Now we're in our third installment of our series on the communion of the saints, uh, or our common union in Christ, however you'd want to, to look at that. If you recall in our first message, we looked at Romans 12. We saw how our really our relationship with one another is not a direct relationship with one another. It's a relationship that's defined by the common union that we have in Jesus Christ. And so that's, that defines and sets the stage and the context for our relationship with one another. And then in our second message, we looked at John 13, and we saw that love is the bond of our unity. Love is the bond of our union. Uh, I don't think Sonny and Cher meant this, but when they had the song, it's love that keeps us together or something like that. You know, if the blind hog found the acorn, there's a bit of truth in that. So we're coming now to our third uh, message in that series today in Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verses 24 and 25, but I'm going to read 19 through 25. And what I want us to see here is our text today is going to address uh, what we can call the formal expression of our common union in Christ. Okay, The formal expression of our common union in Christ. But there's another way to say this. It could also be described as the corporate expression of of our love to one another. So if you look now to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, several times we've found ourselves at the hinge point in a book. Okay. That point uh, in the book where we go from doctrinal instruction, uh, the uh, indicatives, if you will, to exhortation to obedience or the imperatives. And that's where we find ourselves today. The first uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 1 through 1018 is the doctrinal portion of this book. In 1019 to the end, we have the exhortation. So what we've just read in this first uh, this section here is the very first exhortation in this section. And if we were to summarize this this exhortation, it would be this: the writer of the Hebrews, after giving ten and a half chapters of doctrine, is now saying, on the basis of Christ's better priesthood and better covenant established in His blood, the writer is now exhorting us to faith hope, and love. And those things are the outworking of Christ's grace in us. And so he's now exhorting us to walk in them. He's saying, listen, based on uh, the better priesthood of Christ and the better covenant that's been established and the grace of Christ that you now have in you, walk in faith, hope, and love. Now in verses 22 and 23, We are called to an individual response. To draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. That's the exhortation to faith. And we're called to hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering. That's the call to hope. And in verses 24 and 25, the writer addresses our corporate response to Christ's better priesthood, and the better new covenant. The first two responses are individual. We're called to individual faith and individual hope. But this is a response that is a corporate response, and it is a call to love one another. Our corporate response is that we are to consider one another, stimulate one another to love and good deeds, assemble together, and encourage one another. So we can say that these four responses are the formal expression of our common union in Christ. Another way to say it is that these are the four corporate expressions of our love to one another. So let's take up first consideration. The verse opens with, let us consider. Now, every translation except for the King James and New King James open up with, Consider how to stimulate one another. And although this is a legitimate rendering, it shifts the focus of the consideration from one another to how to stimulate. And this is an important distinction. Because in the original, the focus is to consider one another. The object of our consideration is one another. The object of our consideration is not the task, it is the people. And the danger here is if we shift our focus to a task, this just becomes some checklist. I'm just checking off, okay? But what we're called to is to consider one another. And what he means by consider here is to direct our mind to something in order to perceive and understand. So this is a call to understanding one another. And here it's a compound word and it's an intensified version. So the idea is not just to think about and consider one another. The idea is to immerse ourselves into and ponder and study one another so that we may know one another as the foundation to loving one another through these other means of stimulating one another to love and good deeds, assembling together and encouraging one another, and we are doing all of this based on Christ's perfect, final, and effectual atonement for sin. Now you can see, this is going to take some effort. It is a deep study of one another, seeking to perceive and understand that person's station or condition in life for the purpose of knowing how I can incite them to uh, loving others and walking in good deeds. But there's something we have to be aware of here. The purpose is not to study one another to find fault. And we have to be aware that when you get to know somebody this well, you get to know them, don't you? The good, the bad, and the ugly. And so we can't be surprised where, in this consideration of one another, we suddenly become aware of the sin in their life as it becomes apparent to us. Our purpose isn't to keep a record of wrongs or a finding of fault, but our purpose is to know how to love one another better. And to do that, we really need to know. The whole person. The term "one another" here is more than an identifier of persons or or the objects of this consideration. It carries with it the idea of reciprocity and mutuality. Okay, this is what we are to be engaged in with one another. Okay, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We equally share in Christ's sacrifice. And we have a common interest and a common union in the person of Jesus Christ and of His grace. We are called to a caring consideration and concern for one another's needs. To understand one another's trials and temptations and sufferings and infirmities and afflictions and joys and triumphs and hardships and blessing and prosperity. All of it. The whole package that is life under the sun. And so we should use our discernment and judgment of these things to know and understand the spiritual and temporal condition of one another. But get this, individually and corporately. We have a tendency to think of this individually, one-to-one. Definitely true in the foundation. But think of this corporately as well, because we don't do this in a vacuum. We're part of a body here. And, and, and how to, to love the corporate body better through serving the body with our gifts and graces. Okay, I can understand these things about one of you in isolation from the rest, but I get a fuller picture of the life of the body when I'm understanding you in the context of my understanding of the rest of you. And that really does inform How to know you better individually and corporately, and how to love you better individually and corporately. So the first thing we're called to in our love for one another and its corporate expression is to just be considering one another in this way, knowing one another in this way, understanding one another in this way. And that brings us to our second formal expression of love or our common union in Christ, is to stimulate one another. It means to incite or provoke. It can be used positively or negatively. Obviously, in this case, it's used positively because we're to stimulate, incite, or provoke one another to loving good deeds. Now, again, the love in view here is that love of the will, not the emotions. We talked about this in the last message in John 13. And there's a very helpful definition of this in the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament that I'll read again. Of the love of men to men, especially of that love of Christians towards Christians, which is enjoined and prompted by their religion, where the love to be... be to be the, where, whether the love be viewed as in the soul or as expressed. So notice what it says about this love of the will. It is prompted by our religion. It is prompted by our common union in Christ. This love is the effect of God's Spirit working in us, sanctifying us, causing us to love the brethren for Christ's sake. It is not a love based on anything in our brother or sister. It is not based on any personal preference I have towards them. It's not based on anything I find attractive in them. It's not based on the fact that I like them or they did something beneficial for me. That's the love of the emotions. Okay? When you do something that that draws me to you and draws Uh, that love out of me to you. That's not what this is. That's the love of the emotion. This is the love of sanctifying grace. This is a love in which the, the will, our will is being sanctified by the grace of Christ in us through the operation of his spirit. And we also need to take note here that this love is viewed as both in the soul and as expressed. Now, we see it in the soul in the consideration of one another we just talked about. To have that kind of consideration of one another, to go to that labor and that effort to know and understand one another is an expression of love in the soul. Seeking to know and understand so that I can be better equipped to love you according to the Word of God. But it's also expressed It's a love that finds its way out in action in the good deeds towards one another that flow out of that consideration. It is goodwill and benevolence of the soul being expressed or acting for the best interests of of others. And this ability to stimulate one another has its foundation in our consideration of Christ. You see, we have this same word here, Used in Hebrews three one, there the writer says, "Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus." So the same consideration we talked just talked about we're supposed to have of one another, we are also to have of the Lord Jesus Christ. And look at the dirge- the trajectory or the direction we get here on that consideration. He says, "Consider Jesus." the apostle and high priest of our confession. So in our Christian walk, we are to be immersed in studying the consideration of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done as the apostle and high priest of our confession. And Hebrews 3.2 goes on to say, He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. So we are to consider how Christ was faithful to the mission given Him by His Father. How faithful was Christ to the mission given Him? Well, He was completely faithful to the giving up of His own life. John Gill said, Now as mediator, He had a trust reposed in Him. As the persons of all God's elect, in a fullness of all grace for them. You see what he's saying here? Okay. He had our souls entrusted to him to merit salvation for them. And to effect and, and to effectuate that salvation. He goes on to say: the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and eternal life and happiness, and also the glory of God in their salvation which trust he has faithfully discharged as an apostle and a high priest in a declaration of the whole will of God in acknowledging it was his father's doctrine he brought in, in seeking not his own, but his father's glory in redeeming and saving the persons committed to him in distributing his grace to them and in bringing them safe to glory and in taking care of, of things pertaining to God. So when we are immersed in our consideration of Christ as our high priest in the new covenant in his blood, and we are immersed in considering all that Jesus has done for us in these things, we are strengthened in our faith, and we are empowered to these love and good deeds. You see, it's only in Christ that we can do good to others. In John 15, 5, Christ, Christ tells us that apart from him, we can do nothing. He goes on in verses 7 and 8 and says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So when we ask what will be done for us, in context here, when we ask what will Christ do for us, well here's what he will do for us, he will empower us by the Holy Spirit to bear much fruit to the glory of God and the good of his people as we seek to act on this consideration of one another and stimulate one another to love and good deeds. This then becomes an, an upward spiral in the life of the church. You know, Romans 1 talks about a downward spiral into sin. This is the exact opposite. This is an upward spiral. As we put others first in our consideration of them, And then by the grace of God to us in Christ and our consideration of Christ, we act on that consideration and we incite one another to love and good deeds. And And then others in the body likewise go out in that same consideration and inciting of one another to love and good deeds. It just has this whole effect of lifting up the entire body. When Christ's church walks in love towards one another in this way, it causes us to stand out as different from the world around us, proving that we are his disciples. That was his whole point in John 15.8. When we forgive one another of our sins against each other, that is different than the world. When we have the welfare of one another as our prime consideration, even over ourselves, that is different than the world. When we act towards one another, exercising our gifts, our goods, and our graces to relieve and strengthen the brethren, that's different than the world. And all of this testifies to the world around us, the truth of the gospel, so that in all things, God will be glorified through Christ. This brings us now to our third formal expression of love or our common union. And that is assembling together. Now, this is stated in the negative. We're called not to forsake the assembly. And so we have a tendency to look at this and focus on what not to do. And we lose sight of the fact that this is a command to assemble together. Verse 25 could have said, assembling together encouraging one another that's just the positive statement of the same truth now forsaking here means to abandon it means to desert it means to leave in dire straits or to leave helpless it has the idea of turning your back on someone when they need your help okay someone that is helpless they are in in a bad position There's nothing they can do about it. Nothing they can do to extract themselves from that position. They cry out to you for help, and you simply turn your back on them and walk away. That's what's in view here. Another way to to consider this is abandoning a sworn duty. In Sunday school this morning, we were talking about uh, officers taking oaths and, and promising to fulfill their duty to the congregation. This would be like coming to your pastor for help and he just turns his back on you and leaves you to your own devices. That's what's in view here when he he says, do not forsake the assembling together. Now, this is not talking about a providential hindrance it's the term we use. Those things that do happen in a fallen world that keep us away from the assembly of God's people when we desire to be here okay take note of the qualifying statement here okay those things that happen in a fallen world that keep us away when we desire to be here now in the world to come there will be nothing that will be able to keep us from gathering with the saints in the assembled congregation to be with our Lord. That is our hope of eternity. Nothing can intrude upon that. Nothing can keep us from that. But now, in life under the sun, that does still happen here. And what is in view regarding the assembling of the saints is attendance upon the corporate worship of the local church on the Lord's Day. This isn't talking about some fellowship event. It isn't talking about a midweek Bible study. It's really not even talking about Sunday school. It is talking about what we are doing right here, right now, and what we will be doing again at 4 p.m. this evening when God's people are gathered together in the corporate worship of the local church. And we see this more plainly when we consider the only other time in Scripture, the word translated assembling together is used. It's in 2 Thessalonians 2.1. And there, Paul, writing to the church in Thessalonica, says, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him. There's the word. And so the context here is the church being gathered together to meet their returning Lord at his second coming and then enter into the new heavens and the new earth with him to this eternal unhindered communion. That's the context of the use of this word. And so it's talking about that church, uh, the church, all of God's people on earth being gathered together with him to be taken in to that eternal assembly where we will be assembled together with him. So clearly, there is an eschatological orientation to the word. It's looking ahead to Christ's return and his gathering of his church to himself. Now, this is part of that here and now, but not yet nature of the new covenant. And if you've heard that, term, that here and now, not yet term before, it's talking about the kingdom of God is here now. The kingdom of God came when Christ came. He opened his gospel ministry in Mark 1:15 by saying the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here right now. Because of that, repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God is here right now. This is the kingdom of God, but it's not yet fully consummated. It's here partially. And so we have this here and now aspect of the kingdom of God. It's here now. It's operating now but we also have these not-yet parts of the kingdom of God that won't come until Christ returns. So 2 Thessalonians 2.1 speaks of the not-yet aspect of the gathering of the entire church to Christ when He comes on Judgment Day. Well, what's Hebrews 10.25 speaking to then? It's speaking of the here and now gathering together of the church the here and now manifestation of the church gathering together today to be with her Lord. You see, this gathering together, it has the same end in view. It's God's people gathering together to be with their Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, in His worship. There's the not yet aspect of it when we're taken to glory, but it happens now. Right now, in all of his churches, everywhere in this world, when those churches come to gather on the Lord's Day in their corporate worship. Uh, Gathering and worshiping as the assembled congregation with Jesus himself in our midst, leading our worship. So in our current text, we have an admonition to not abandon, turn your back on, or desert the assembly where we come to meet with our Lord and receive His grace to us through His established means. That's what this exhortation is. And brethren, we think too lightly of this in our day. And we do not take seriously enough the spiritual harm we cause to ourselves and our brothers and sisters when we forsake the assembly. What is the primary opportunity we have to incite love, good deeds, and encouragement in the brethren? It is when we gather. And if you are not here when we gather, think of what you miss. You miss meeting with Christ. He is here right now. He'll be back here at four o'clock this afternoon. You miss out on His grace that He has sovereignly determined to pour out on His people in this body in that moment through His appointed means. Did you ever think about attending a church service that way? Christ is here and He is coming with a purpose to pour out His grace upon you through His appointed means. And if you're not here, you miss it. You miss your brethren expressing their love to you. You steal away from your brothers and sisters an opportunity to love you. Brethren, we've got to take this more seriously. We've got to understand what is happening when we gather and what we miss if we choose not to be here when we could be. Let me ask you this. What if you knew the Lord was going to visibly appear to this congregation next Lord's Day He was going to stand right up here and talk to you? Would you miss it? Would you miss it? Would you think there was something more important than being here? Well, I'm willing to venture that you wouldn't and you would give up everything else you had to make sure you were here. And here's the point. He does meet with us here every Lord Day. He is doing that very thing. Not visibly, but spiritually. And He's doing it to pour out His grace upon us through His appointed means. And when we forsake the assembly, we are implying that we don't need what the Lord offers only in this setting. Brethren, we need to give that some deep consideration. And I'm intentionally using the word consideration as I earlier defined it. We need to give that some deep study. We need to give that some deep thought. But you see, we even see in our text here, there's nothing new under the sun. This was an issue in the day that the writer wrote this letter. What does he go on to say? As is the habit of some. This is a common affliction in the life of the church. Now, we don't know for sure the reason why they were forsaking the assembly. Some commentators believe it was the integration of Gentiles in the church causing Jewish Christians to absent themselves as part of their residual Judaism. We don't know for sure, and I'm glad we don't know. I'm really glad we don't know. Because we'd have a tendency to say, well, that doesn't apply to me. Okay? Here's why I'm glad we don't know. Because it underscores there is no good reason to abandon the assembly of the congregation. There is no good reason. Now take note that this is a habit. It's not an isolated absence. Now, you know, it, it's not a habitual thing. It's it it's what's in view here, not in view here is a single forsaking. Okay. Most of the commentators, when they talk about that, they speak of it as the first visible sign of apostasy. And I would tell you over the 25 years I've been involved in ministry, when you see those who fall away from the faith, this is one of the first visible signs that you see of it. They start forsaking the assembly. Okay? But that's not saying everybody that does, even sinfully so, is heading to apostasy. Okay, But that is what the habit of it means. Now, some may immediately ask, well, how many times can I have in an unexcused absence and not be guilty of forsaking the assembly? Don't raise your hand, but I know some of you, that question already popped into your head. And here's what I would like to point out to you, that the question itself exposes a legal spirit. That box-checking mentality. And brothers and sisters, what we have to be careful of with that is a legal spirit leads to lawlessness. Because once you realize you can't check every boxes, you finally go, what's the use? And now you justify yourself in walking away. So there's great warning here. John Gill said it well. He said, it is the duty of saints to assemble together for public worship on the account of God who has appointed it, who approves of it, and whose glory is concerned in it. And on the account of the saints themselves, that they may be delighted, refreshed, comforted, instructed, edified, and perfected. And on account of others, that they may be convinced, converted, and brought to the knowledge and faith of Christ, and in imitation of the primitive saints. And an assembling together ought not to be forsaken, for it is a forsaking of God, and here's the important part, and their own mercies, and such are like to be forsaken of God. Nor is it known what is lost hereby, and it is the first outward visible step to apostasy and often issues in it. Brothers and sisters, we need to we need to consider much, much more deeply how we perceive what happens here and how that informs really our motivation and desire to be here. Well, this brings us now to our fourth formal expression of our love and common union, and that is encouragement. Now, I want you to take note that he moves from the only negative admonition. The, the not forsaking was the only one he phrased in the negative, and I think, there, I think that was intentional. Okay. And uh, he moves from do not forsake the assembling together, which is perhaps the major discouragement to the brethren, to the positive exhortation of encouragement. And the word translated encouragement encompasses a broad range of interaction. It, it, it involves speaking with one another, okay? So to encourage, yes, there is a sense in which your mere presence encourages. But what he has in view here is being engaged with one another. So it involves speaking to one another in a way of exhortation, admonition, comfort, or encouragement. So there's a semantic range that covers a breadth of interaction with one another. And this encouragement, likewise, flows out of this understanding we are to have of one another gained through our consideration of one another. Uh, Just as does our stimulating one another to love and good deeds flows out of that consideration of one another and how to love one another better. And just as our commitment to assemble together flows out of our consideration for one another and our love for one another. So whether it is someone in sorrow who needs words of comfort or someone weighed down under the vanity of life under the sun and needs a word of encouragement, or someone being tempted to sin that needs to be admonished, or really all of us who every week need to hear the exhortation from God's word and be reminded of his love and grace to us in Christ that has been proclaimed to us in the gospel, all is encompassed in what is here called encouragement. And to encourage one another requires us to be present with one another Hence the connection to not forsaking the assembly. But again, brothers and sisters, it's not just our presence, but also our interaction with one another. How can we engage with one another and reciprocate in this duty without being with one another? And conversely, what is the point of being with one another if we don't have meaningful engagement with one another? Now the writer then goes to close out this exhortation by adding the impending urgency of the Lord's return as additional motive for this to receive our immediate attention. He closes with all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now what day is in view here? There are a number of different views. I think the eschatological context coupled with the urgency and intensity of the admonition points to the second advent that day in which Christ will return from heaven, raise the dead, hold the final judgment, and perfect his kingdom. Now, if you remember, as we entered into this section, the initial motivation to walk in faith, hope, and love on the better priesthood and covenant established in Christ's blood is now intensified with the additional urgency that Christ is coming soon to take us from the here and now into the not yet completed kingdom. And the clear exhortation of Scripture everywhere uh, it refers to, to this day is that given the nearness of the return of Christ as the next event of redemptive history, it should spur us on to persevere in the faith living holy lives in full expectation and hope of this promised inheritance that is ours in Christ, and to mutually love one another fervently. Christ is coming. He is coming soon. Our opportunity to love one another in this way is today. When our Lord returns, may we be found faithful in these things. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we pray, Lord, that You would, by Your Spirit, take these words, apply them in our hearts, sanctify us by Your grace, and conform us into the image of Christ. Father, our desire is that we would indeed know and grow in how to understand and love one another according to Your Word and Your will. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.